Let me pray, and we'll look into God's word. So, God, we uh, we sang earlier. We welcome you with praise, and when we were welcoming you, we're not just welcoming thoughts about you. We're actually welcoming something from the invisible world, your spirit being here among us, within us, among us. And so your Holy Spirit is present. And he's uh, he's the greatest teacher in the world. He's the greatest therapist in the world. He's the greatest, knowledge, most knowledgeable person about our souls in the world. And um, he's also totally, totally the author of Scripture. So as we look at Scripture today, um, would you, Holy Spirit, would you teach us? Would you show us things maybe we haven't seen before? Would you tell us things we haven't heard before? Or would you at least highlight them in such a way that we understand you, God, better? Not just understand you, we want to experience you. We want to know you. We want to walk with you. We want to be friends with you. We want to experience the peace and joy and generosity you offer us. And we ask this all in your name. Amen. This topic to start off with is uh, reading the fine print. So uh, my, most of my experience lately reading the fine print is when I go to Kroger, all right, and you walk by the pop aisle and they have these big, you know, two liters of pop and it says 99 cents on the tag. Then you get closer when you buy 10 or more or something like that. It's like well, 10 or more, all right? And some of, some of them I can tell there's fine print on the tags and since I... I can't, I can't bend down enough to read it, so I'll actually take a picture of it with my phone and then look at the fine print. Oh, I have to buy five of those in order to get that price. But the, the, the sale price is always really big. Get this. Oh, here's the little, you know. So, or when you have a coupon to a restaurant. I mean, you probably like me. You have a coupon to a restaurant or whatever. And then all of a sudden you start reading the fine print. Well, you can get this deal if you buy two meals and a drink or this and that. And this tells you when it expires. But the fine print is usually the news they don't want you to see right away, right? So it's like the, you know, fine print. And then my, my latest experience with fine print is, I remember a couple years ago, we got, those of us who have, had kids in that age, we got these advanced child tax credits from the government during the pandemic. So we got our checks and I cashed them and, da, 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 and we got this IRS letter that said that what we should do with it. It was a couple years ago. We got a letter this week that said we, 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 they want some of the money back. I'm just like, but it's like if you read the fine print on the document they sent with taxes, like I didn't know. But it's like fine print often is what they put, whether it's a store, coupon, IRS, whatever. The fine print is often stuff that you need to know, but sometimes they don't want you to know because it doesn't sound as good, right? But the fine print, all right? So today we're going to talk about sometimes we read the Bible and some of the passages we we wish was fine print, or we in, emotionally we put it in fine print because we want this, all the great and good, uh, but this stuff, we'll just kind of put that off to the side. Let's drop that down to five-point font because I'm not sure I want to see that part of the Bible. No, none of us say it that way, but you know what I mean, especially when you think things about God and his justice and maybe his punishment and things like that. So I've been doing a series called Want More. Uh, I want to know Christ, the power. So how do you want more of God when Moses says, show me your glory, God? He wants more of God. So it's more than just, like I've said, the checkbox of I follow Jesus, I'm a Christian now, I've prayed the prayer, or whatever I'm supposed to do. And sometimes we think that's it for the Christian life. I just got to hold on and try to be moral. 
but it seems like Paul and Moses and other men and women through Scripture and other men and women throughout history and other men and women even in this room and people you know realize there's more to the, therefore I'm in. It's an, it's, an, it's, a, it's an invitation into a relationship of love with God. So understanding that you, we should want more of that um, and not just, and like I said other times, sometimes we want more of God. Sometimes all we can say is I want to want more of God, and sometimes it's I want to want to want more of God. But wherever you are, at least tell that to God, all right? So that's the whole the context here. So in terms of fine, the fine print, go to the next slide here. So we've been doing a, the, the passage from Exodus 34, and if you remember what's happening here, um, children of Israel, Egypt's always over here now, so the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and God rescues them through some dramatic miracles and plagues against the Egyptians because they were fighting it. Egyptians were fighting to let them go. They go through the Red Sea. God closes the Red Sea after he opened it up for his people, kills them. The Egyptians all die. They're on their way to the promised land through Sinai Peninsula, modern-day Egypt, Israel, the Middle East region. And uh, God gives Moses some of the, the laws, his commandments for his people. Like you if you want to have the fullness of life, you need to live this way. The people get impatient when Moses is up on the mountain talking to God. They do the golden calf thing. And the golden calf, idolatry, and I've, always, I've said idolatry is anything we want more than we want more of God. So you may not have a golden calf in your house or in your car hanging from your rearview mirror, but we all have golden calves. We all have things we want more than we want God. So the people, got, uh, God punished them. And then God tells Moses, hey, go on to the promised land. I'll, I'll send an angel with you, but I'm not going with you. Because I, I, you know, I might, I might destroy these people. And then Moses says, well, I don't want to go unless you go with us. And God says, basically says yes. And then Moses says one more thing. God, show me your glory. I want to know you in a way. I want to show me my, your glory is kind of an invitation to God. I want to see all of you. I want to experience you. It's a pretty bold ask. It's a very bold ask. And so that's where God says, okay, Moses, I'll walk by you. Again, I, I don't know how in the world Steven Spielberg would make a movie of this, this scene, but it would be incredible if we would see it someday, and maybe we will someday in heaven. But God says, okay, Moses, I'll, I'm going to go by you. I'm going to put you in this cleft in the rock. I'm going to go by you, and I will, I will tell you who I am. And that's where God walks by Moses, and then it says God shouted, like he's telling Moses who he is. This is the, one, this is the primary place in Scripture where God is defining who he is. It's so important that it's at least 20 times in Scripture this, this or parts of this are repeated in Scripture. So this was the clear understanding for the Old Testament Jews and New Testament. This is who God says he is. So whether or not... Uh, other people might have, we all may have idea, ideas who God is. This is who God says he is. This is his definition of himself, all right? And he says, Yahweh, the Lord. Actually, read this out loud with me, all right? Yahweh, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. I lavish loyal love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And we're like, yes, 99 cents for a two liter of pop, Right? All right? And you'll see, I, I kind of I small printed some stuff down there, but that's part of what God said. All right? It's the small print, and it's there. And we don't read it with small print, 
but emotionally we kind of want it to be small print. But it's part of, this is just, this is what God said about himself, but he said more. And the more that he said doesn't discount what he said. It actually kind of goes hand in glove to make, because this, remember, God said, this is, I'm showing you my glory. He even said, I'm letting my goodness pass by you. Everything God says about himself is a function of his goodness. All right. So now let's go, let's read the next slide about what he said. All right. So on the top is the, the part I had in this big print before, you know, I'm slow to anger, compassionate, but this is what he says. I, I, I forgive, forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but then he says, but I do not clear the guilty. All right, read that yellow line with me. But I do not clear the guilty. And it feels initially like a little bit of a bait and switch. Whoa. What, what happened to all this compassion and slow to anger? Loving love, loyal love. I do not clear the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations. He said he lavished love thousands of generations. But he said, I'm not, I don't clear the guilty. Some of the versions will say, I don't excuse the guilty. I don't excuse their sin. But I just like the phrase, clear the guilty. I won't clear the guilty. And this is part of the part that it's like, one sense we think, sounds a little, and this is the sounds a little harsh. It's not. I mean, we'll talk about that in a second. If that's who God says, that's part of who I am. That's how he defines himself. I don't clear the guilty. And then we're wrestling with, okay, wait a minute. Oh, so that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to kind of erase these last few verses. And the answer to that is no, because if wherever God was in the Old Testament, Jesus was there. So Jesus was part of this conversation. He wasn't saying to God, no, 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 no. Just, no, whatever God said, Jesus said, would say. Jesus never discounted. He never, went, he never told people, let's kind of... Uh, change that part in Exodus, all right? So let's talk about the phrase, I do not clear the guilty, all right? So go to the next slide. So that's going to be our phrase for the day, but I'm going to talk about three situations where that phrase, that exact phrase is used in the Old Testament. Give me give a better understanding of what God's saying with that, all right? First is Exodus 34. This is when they were on Sinai Peninsula. It's when Moses had just uh, come down from the mountain. They'd done the golden calf. This is the passage we've been looking at for the last number of, actually, months now, where God says to them, God says to, to Moses when he says, my glory is going to pass by you and my goodness, and this is when he says the passage we just read, that um, after God tells Moses he's, he's angry at the people, that, but then he uses this phrase after he says, I'm loving, compassionate, slow to anger, full of loyal love, all these things that we totally, totally want in God, and we of course we want that in God. But I don't clear the guilty. That's when he first said it. He said that to Moses when Moses was begging God, and that's the right way to use it, I think. He was begging God, no, go with us, now show me your glory. All right? So that's the first time he used it. Because he, he was basically saying, so all those people that rebelled against me and were worshiping the golden calf and in this, all this debauchery that was going on, God's like, I, I, I forgive this is where, I, right away, God's clearly helping us understand there's two groups of people. There's those who are forgiven, but those who remain guilty, all right? He forgives those who ask for forgiveness, but there still seems to be this category of people called the guilty. 
So that was Exodus 34. Now, I'm going to kind of do a little jump in history because Exodus 34 would have been like 1300 B.C. I'm going to jump to about 600 B.C. And we're going to go to the upper right hand and the prophet Nahum. Right? And then that little star up there is the city of Nineveh and the kingdom of Assyria. And the Assyrians were like the world power of the day. And when you think, and this, you might think, wait a minute, I thought Nineveh was Jonah. Yes, it was. Jonah and Nineveh pending happened earlier in history. So apparently Nineveh went back to their old ways. And uh, Nineveh is the capital of Syria. The Assyrians were brutal people. When you think Assyrians, think Nazi Germany in terms of brutality. Um, they'd, ca- they'd already captured the northern half of Israel. So Israel was separated. Israel and the southern half was called Judah. They'd captured that 100 years before. And they were known for their brutality. Um, they were known for torturing people, impaling them, decapitating them, flaying them, pulling their tongues out. They made... They made people grind the bones of their dead family members. Uh, they were full of, and we read this in Scripture, they were full of deceit, violence, pride, and arrogance. So the whole book of Nahum is God pronouncing judgment on Nineveh for their incredible evil and wickedness and arrogance and deceit and pride. So the whole book of Nahum, the prophet, is basically saying, God's going to destroy them. Now, he's, he's saying that because it's a comfort for God's people who are terrified and kind of been asking, God, aren't you going to do something about that, those evil people? And yes, God is slow to, slow to anger, but there is a limit to that. It's kind of like Nazi Germany. I mean, think about Nazi Germany for a second. I think if somebody were to say, let's say we're all, let's say we're all, you know, people in Nazi Germany or were, you know, Jews in the concentration camps. If somebody were to say, you know, God will take vengeance on this someday. He will not clear the guilty. I think all of us would be like, yes, I need a God like that. God has to be that. God has to have justice. There has to be limits to what he tolerates. And if somebody were to say, no, I think God kind of is going to forgive all those Nazi atrocities, and you may see Hitler next to you in heaven. I think most of us would say, I don't want that God. No, but God's forgiving and loving, right? He's slow to anger. No, but I don't want that God. Or take out Nazi Germany and think about people that have hurt you deeply or wounded you harshly or, or just evil in the world today, but think about people. And, and there is something in you that says there needs to, the wrong needs to be made right. There needs to be retribution And God even says there needs to be vengeance, but he says the vengeance is mine on the guilty. So in the book of Nahum, again, it's it's the prophecy that any of us would resonate with when God basically says, I will not tolerate evil anymore. And this is what God actually said. I'll read the first part of the first chapter of Nahum. It's three chapters long. He says that the Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. Again, now you're hearing this now as Jewish people who have been terrified of the, of the Assyrians for years, your whole life maybe, all right? And you're thinking, this is what I need in God, all right? The Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. Then Nahum pulls back from 1,800 years prior. The Lord is slow to get angry. 
But his power is great, and here's our phrase, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He displays his power in the whirlwind and the storm. So Nahum is pulling back something that every Jewish man, woman, and boy would have known that God said that about himself in Exodus 34. And they're like, yes, we need to know. He's angry. He's great. He's great in power. And he's slow to get angry. Nahum says, he's slow to get angry. He's great in power. But he doesn't clear the guilty of the wicked. And it almost seems contradictory. Slow to anger. I won't clear the guilty. But there's a limit. Right? And so I, I will not clear the guilty. And so in that sense, we want God to be that way. I want God to not clear the guilty of evil people. I want God, if I'm watching a movie about the Holocaust or some other horrible thing in history, and you're probably the same way, I want God to take revenge on those people. He needs to make right. He, otherwise, if God just kind of overlooks it, I'll say, well... Yeah, well, I'll, I'll forgive that, I'll forgive that, I'll forgive that. Then, then God becomes something none of us want. There's, there's no justice. It's just kind of all the, all the income free. And it, it, especially if there's somebody that's hurt you deeply, you think, well, wait a minute. What? Doesn't, something doesn't feel right if God doesn't execute justice on those who remain in the guilty category, which essentially those who are unrepentant and don't even, ask for, don't even want God's forgiveness. So why would, why would any of us want God to clear the guilty in that situation? We want him not to because we want him to be powerful and strong. We want him to be loyal, compassionate, slow to anger, loving. But we also want to know that him to be powerful and strong and that he has a, there's a limit to his justice, but his justice is part of his goodness. Because if he doesn't execute justice against the evil, is he really good? Or is he just kind of a divine Santa Claus that lets everything go? We want, we, justice is a part of his goodness. We want that, especially toward evil. So that's Nahum chapter 1. That's where Nahum pulls back, way back into history. And we, for this, it's easy to some degree to see that, okay, I understand why God doesn't clear the guilty. Because when it comes to Nazi Germany or the Assyrians or throughout history or even the people I know who have hurt me deeply who are far from God, but they've hurt me, there needs to be some vengeance. But God says, that's mine. But it makes us feel safe with God if we know that he doesn't just let that go forever. Slow to anger, yeah, but he doesn't let it go forever. All right? That's Nahum chapter 1. Now, now I want to jump again in history. So Exodus 34 was after they left Egypt. Nahum 1 was... 1,800 years later, but I'm jumping back now to the Exodus. And now we're going to Numbers chapters 14. I'm doing that for a reason. Because in Nahum, it's really, we, we can all kind of come on board with, yes, God should, should not clear the guilt of those people, the evil people, the enemies. In this case, that were violent, deceitful, arrogant, and proud. It's easier for us to say that about in the Nazi Germany or, you know, the Syrians or whatever else. Be that. We need God to be that. We feel safe. Numbers 14, though, is a few years after God first defined himself in Exodus 34 to Moses. And now God uses this phrase, or not, God doesn't use it, Moses repeats it to God. Now it's toward religious people. So it's easy for us to see that God won't clear the guilty toward those people. 
But Numbers 14 hits a little bit closer to home because now it's these people God's saying it to. His people. Religious people. Not just religious people. His religious people. So here's what's happening in Numbers 14. This would have been like the beginning of the second year after they left Egypt. They'd already gone through the golden calf thing and they already knew God was serious about obeying him. And they also knew God was not going to tolerate wickedness and evil among them. And he had already displayed himself to Moses saying, this is my goodness and I'm all these things, loyal love, faithfulness, slow to anger. But Exodus 34 verse 7, I will not clear the guilty. I'm not going to clear them. So now this is Numbers chapter 13 and 14. For the most part, same group of people. And when I, when I read this, these chapters a couple different times, two words stick out, or one word primarily, they complained a lot. And it's not wrong to, to kind of let your heart be known to God, but there's a complaining, and the old King James would call it murmuring. They're murmuring. And the word murmur is one of those words that is meant to sound like it is. Murmur, 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 murmur. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm complaining about God. Not complaining about God. I'm complaining about God. So they were complaining, oh, we don't, have any, we don't have water. We don't have food. I wish we were back in Egypt, have the vegetables back there. We're getting sick and tired of this manna. Yeah, it's supernaturally provided every day. And they saw, but we're tired of it. We're sick and tired of this. So, and then God gives them quail. But there still is this spirit of complaining, complaining. Even Miriam and Aaron, who are Moses' sister and brother, they start complaining about Moses. And they say, well, what? God, God doesn't speak just to you, Moses. He speaks to us too. And, but it was really a, a push up against God. They weren't pushing on Moses as much as they were pushing on God. Why did God let him lead it, not us? So there's this spirit of complaining and murmuring. And then God says, okay, Moses, Moses appoints 12 men to go to the promised land, modern day. Moses there, the 12 spies, to scout out the land. It was the land God was going to give them. And they come back. And uh, out of the 12, you remember how many complained about it? This land will devour us. All right. And then Caleb and Joshua, the two that said, no, no, wait. Caleb says, no, no, we, we can do this. And the people then said, why, why is God taking us somewhere that's just going to destroy us? And then Moses and Aaron and then Caleb and Joshua, the two spies that were faithful to God in this sense, said, no, no, God will bring us there. He said he would. He's with us. After they said that, the people thought about, the Bible says they thought about stoning them. Aaron, Moses, Caleb, and Joshua, the ones that said, no, God is with us. Thought about stoning them. And then God, so God, he has his limits, and I don't mean limits like he blows his top, but there's a limit to his slowness to anger. He's not, he's not permissive eternally. And then this is what God says to Moses. How long will these people treat me with contempt? Will they never believe me, even after all the miraculous signs I have done among them? I will disown them and destroy them with a plague. And then Moses says, Moses goes back. 
year and a half or so to Mount Sinai. He remembers what God told him, how God defined himself. And Moses said to God, please, Lord, prove that your power is great as you have claimed. For you said the Lord is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. And then Moses is telling this to God, but he doesn't clear the guilty. So Moses is repeating back to God, you, you're slow to anger, you're filled with unfailing love, you're forgiving, but you, are, you don't clear the guilty. You lay the sins of the parents upon their children and the entire family is affected. Moses is telling that to God in the midst of when Moses desperately wants God just to kind of issue a blanket pardon over all these people. But that's not really what Moses is asking for. He's just saying, God, be, be you. Be compassionate, forgiving, be slow to anger. You said you're this, but I know you don't clear the guilty. You can't. None, we don't want you to clear the guilty. We don't say it that way, but that's what we want. We don't want God to clear the guilty. But then the issue with this passage becomes, what if the guilty is us? Well, yeah, I don't want God to clear the guilty of the Assyrians or Nazi Germany. People have hurt me, but I don't do that. No. But it seemed like what God was getting at with all those was a complaining spirit. Or with the Assyrians, it was deceit and arrogance and pride. None of those things are, we're not immune to those. So then God says to Moses, I will pardon them. But he said, I'm not going to, Moses, you don't clear their guilt. And the Lord says, okay, I'll pardon them as you've requested. But as surely as I live and as surely as the earth is filled with the Lord's glory, this is God saying now, not one of these people will ever enter the land. They have all seen my glorious presence and the miraculous signs I performed both in Egypt and in the wilderness. I mean, think of all the things God did for these people. So it's easy. Then it's obvious to say God slowed down all these things he did for them. And they're still complaining in rebellion and complaining in rebellion complaining in rebellion. Against I performed. They have tested me by refusing to listen to my voice. That seems to be the limit to God's slow to anger, compassion, again and again, refusing to listen to my voice. Refusing to listen to my voice. And I won't clear the guilty who again and again refuse to listen to my voice. And the too big, they're too mighty, the land, we can't do it. God said then the people were filled with grief because they heard God say this. They knew this. And then they said, well, let's go now. Now we'll go. I think, I think though you have small children, you know, many times you're going to punish them if they keep doing that. They won't get the cookie after all. And then you say, okay, no cookie. Oh, oh, oh. Then if you say, oh, well, now I'll do it. Well, most of us would say you're a, you're a soft parent if you do that. If you, let, if, you keep, if you keep doing it, maybe once or twice. I mean, we've all done it once or twice, right? John, you've probably done it once or twice with your boys. I don't know. But we all do it. But if it's a, if it's a pattern of who you are as a mom or a dad, most people would say, that's not a healthy parent. You're not doing what's good for that child. So the people say, okay, let's... We're,
they'd already exhausted God's patience. And understandably, God's like, no. So they, they go anyway, and they go anyway. Moses says, well, don't. Now, when you're, and you're, now you're disobeying God again because he said don't go. It won't work. Moses actually said that it won't work. And so they, these people try to go toward the promised land. And the Bible, the Bible tells us that the, the inhabitants of the land just chased them back because God wasn't with them anymore. Because God said, Moses even reminded God, you don't clear the guilt. You don't clear the guilty. So now you might think, hey, wait. Where do, where do we fit into that? Where does Jesus fit into that? I mean, doesn't, wouldn't Jesus have looked at those stories? Oh, no, God should. Would Jesus have said, God, don't punish them. Let them go anyway. They said they're sorry. Well, they said they're sorry after again and again refusing to hear God's voice. All right? They said they're sorry after again and again and again and again refusing to listen to God's voice. So then, and you think, I think, and I'll say this, this, this is one of those passages, right? I was joking about the fine print, but just know this, it's really easy for pastors, myself included, to want to skip the fine print passages, because it's like, ugh. I actually had another plan for this week, early in the week, and then I thought, no, because I, I kind of forgot what was next in that passage about I don't clear the guilty. I didn't forget, and I wasn't intentionally being, but I felt like, and I was going to kind of start doing some Easter stuff, and I thought this would be really good. But I feel like it's God like, you're not done with this passage yet. I was like, oh, and I wasn't avoiding it, but maybe I was, all right? Because then you think, hey, I do not clear the guilty. I'll just go to the next slide. Just leave this up there now. I do not clear the guilty. That's God speaking. So again, there's, there's guilty people in God's eyes, and then there's forgiven people. And you might say, well, Jesus changed that, right? When Jesus, more than once, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, he said, You remain guilty because all the things I've done for you, you still don't listen to what I say. You don't do what I say. Jesus called the Pharisees guilty more than once. You're guilty. So Jesus clearly understood, and nobody would say, Oh, come on, Jesus, give them a break. They're trying. They're really good religious people. But Jesus knew who God was because he was that too. I'm not going to clear the guilty. The moment any of the Pharisees would have asked for forgiveness, which some did, obviously. There were some, Nicodemus and others. They, could, they would be in the forgiven category. And the big divide there, which separating the guilty and the forgiven, is pride. I'm too proud to acknowledge I need God. I think I'm good enough as it is. And it seems like pride becomes that huge chasm that separates those people. And I, even among God's people, even among the Israelites, even among Christians in America, maybe even, in, even among Christians in this room, and maybe even in my own heart, right? So we tend to think, well, I, I listen to what God tells me to do. But there's 5% where I'm going to do it my way. What he tells me to do. Or I'm going to ignore what he tells me to do. And maybe sometimes God is ex- ex- extending incredible patience toward me or toward you. Even in the midst of we're followers of Jesus, 
But yet there's times where even followers of Jesus need to be somewhat, not somewhat, ruthlessly, I'll say, self-examinatory, if that's even a word. Like, is there anything, God, I'm doing that I'm, where I'm intentionally not hearing your voice? You know, because in the, in, the, in the book of 1 John, and this is one of the things I used to wrestle with, like, well, so does that mean if I, if I sin and I don't ask forgiveness right away, am I part of this group? Well, no. First John, John tells us this. He says it's those, the way the, way the passage is worded, it's no, those who continue to sin and over and over again and again refuse to listen to God's voice. And it's sometimes there's sin in your life or my life, and you think, well, I, I keep falling into that sin, but I don't want to. That, I think, is an area for the grace of God to be incredibly powerful in your life. I'm talking about where people are, and I've talked to people like this who were Christians. Again and again, they're refusing to listen to God's voice, and they, they, they don't intend to stop. They don't want to stop doing that. I remember talking talk years ago. I can't remember his name or his girlfriend's name or his fiance. We were talking to premarital counseling, and he was telling me that he still liked to go to uh, strip clubs. And I'm looking at his fiance. She, yeah, he still does that. She's like, she doesn't have a problem with that. I'm like, do you? I said, do you plan to stop? Oh no, I don't plan to stop. And do you still you still think you're a Christian? He's like, yeah. I said, let me. Probably not, because again, you might struggle with sin in your life. If you struggle with sin in your life, and you're like, I, I fall and I get up and I really want to quit. I want God to help me. That's one thing. That's the place where God's grace kind of enormously can pour in and God can help you. But if there's sin in your life or in my life where I was like, yeah, I know. I'm not planning to quit. I mean, I got my heaven ticket, right? I'm good. I'm 95% obedient, 98% even obedient. This era, I know I'm not doing what God told me to do, but I'm going to do it this way anyway. You got to think about that. Because... John even says that in the Gospel of John. Jesus talks about that. Jesus would very easily repeat what God said, and I'm sure he was again and again. Let me just say, again and again, you don't do what I say. Let me just, I'm going to read this psalm, and then we'll have another passage, and I'll read. But this, I just, I actually just found this this morning. This is the Psalm of David, Psalm 32, after the whole thing with Bathsheba. So you might think, wow. He was totally in the guilty category, but then God had grace on him and confronted him, and he, he humbles himself before God, and he leaves the company of the guilty to be among the company of the forgiven because he didn't let his pride stop him. This is what David wrote in Psalm 32. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. And this, this is a... Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt. There's our phrase. Oh, what joy for those when God has cleared them of guilt. And you might think of issues in your life where you feel like maybe there's some past issues in your life that you've, it's not you anymore. You're cleared of that guilt. Satan loves to bring that back up and say, no, no, remember who you were. That's not me anymore. So David says, those whose record of the Lord is cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. That's this category, people who live in complete honesty toward God. When I refuse to confess my sins, my body wastes it away, 
and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. It's over here, right? Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. And I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All of my guilt is gone. Cleared of guilt, all of my guilt is gone. So even for God's people, David, man after God's own heart, his chosen people, the Israelites in the desert, there are times where we have to deal with those issues that we have not wanted to deal with a God for about. Not issues of struggle, issues of kind of defiance. And that's, that's who God is. And we easily say we want that to be God when it comes to Assyrians and Nazis and Democrats, Republicans, or whoever else you hate, right? It's easy to say, God, you don't clear their guilt. But when it comes to, and we think, well, I don't, I'm not, I'm not torturing people like the Assyrians. I'm not those kind of people. But God doesn't really have this standard of whose evil is worse. Not hearing the voice of God is not hearing the voice of God. And if again and again and again and again you don't hear the voice of God or don't respond to it, you hear it and you don't respond to it, then I'm no, you're no, different than the Assyrians. But that's why God, that's why, then, then it turns out, see, then that's why God's mercy, his compassion, his faithful love, his loyal love is so incredible because it's like, no, this is what, I, I'll do this for you. Just do, just do this. Just be honest before me. That's all God asked for. And you might think that's a big ask. It is a big ask, but it's a huge ask because it's, it's, the, it's the pathway to the promised land. So then we'll finish with this here. This is uh, 1 John 1.8. Um, kind of the sense of, yes, God isn't clear of the guilty, but he forgives those who confess. He can forg- God doesn't deal with the proud. He doesn't negotiate with the proud. All right. Read this out loud with me, all right? If we claim sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just our sins and to cleanse us from all. The last phrase again, cleanse us from righteousness. It's one of those, again, this whole week when I was working on this, I thought, okay, how, I, this, this kind of feels heavy. I mean, to me it did. Maybe it doesn't to you, but to me it feels heavy. But it's like, and it feels like, I wish that was fine print. Can we fine print that section, God, or maybe just eliminate it altogether? But I think from the example of the Assyrians, or a, we want God to be just. We don't feel safe if he's not just. Who wants to follow a king who's not safe and powerful? So, but his promise is, Forgiveness, loyal love, compassionate, grace. That's what he wants to do for us. That's who he wants to be for us. And he can only be that for us if we're willing to kind of step out of the guilty land of things we don't want to deal with and then be transparent before God. And then the sky is the limit for what God can do in our lives. The sky is the limit for what kind of joy. I mean, even David says, what joy? for those who have been cleared of guilt. So God does clear the guilty, but it's partially our, our response to them of being open and transparent and listening to his voice. But David says, what joy when you live when you live in the world where you've been cleared of guilt. And that's where it leads to communion.
when Jesus, you know, I'll just leave this up here for a community. Go back, keep that slide back up there. So the, Jesus says, every time you eat this, remember me. And he specifically says about the cup, every time you drink this cup, you are proclaiming forgiveness of sins. So it's forgiveness of sins. It's forgiveness of sins. And through Jesus, through his cross, and through our obedience to him and our contrition before him, he clears our guilt through forgiveness of sin. He doesn't clear it just like a, a erasing a ledger. So uh, here's how we do it at Exodus. Aaron's going to come up and lead us. Come on up. Feel led to. And actually, uh, Aaron. Why don't you close your eyes for a second? I just kind of feel like I'm supposed to do this. I just take, up, take 60 seconds with God in case there's some issue he's trying to point out to you that needs to be let go of in your life so you can be in the world of joy because your guilt is gone. All right, so just take a minute to listen. So Jesus, what, just like David said, what joy for those who know their guilt has been erased. And it's only because of you. But the joy that you promise us is what we hunger for. We want more of that. We want to live in how you want us to live. So Jesus, we ask this on your name. Amen.